ahead and turn with me to James chapter 4. And while we're getting there, uh, if you guys are going to serve in camp uh, in any capacity, we hope that you guys will be here next week. We want to pray for you guys as the three-week stretch begins from kids to middle school to high school in the consecutive weeks that are coming. Um, and if you guys need more information about camps, again, Bonnie had said, reach out to her. You guys can talk with her. So before we get into James chapter 4, you guys can go ahead and place uh, your markers there. I want to go over just a few things. Of course, as we've been talking about the book of James, we've been talking about the importance of living out your faith. You know, one thing that Christianity has taught me is that the more that you live it out, you're going to come to this uh, impasse of whether you're actually living out your faith for Jesus or whether you're a fraud. Truly, there's no in-between, right? And I'm going to talk a little bit about this in a, in a little bit, but really James gives us practical instructions to live out your faith. There is a really uh, important inclination that comes from James. I talked a little bit about it um, in, in sermons past, but really there's three things that really uh, compile the book of James, and if you guys have been around, you know, Christian circles for any time, then you would probably hear, like, the joke of the Levitical law, right? Like, it, when people say, or when people mention the Torah, and they talk about, like, the five, first five books of the Bible, people often joke about, oh, when, when you reference the law, you're talking about the book of Leviticus. Why? Because it's, it's a snooze fest, right? <laughs> But truly, you see the love and the loyalty of Levitical law that comes through the book of James. And we're going to see a lot of that through chapter 5. And the provision of Proverbs. Oh, man, we love Proverbs, right? Because Proverbs is the daily steps. It's the wisdom, right? It's the, it's the gold mine. It's where we get our little gold nuggets from. And then we see the boldness of the Beatitudes. And you have to remember James, being the half-brother of Jesus, saw this firsthand. He saw, he saw, James saw Jesus demonstrate the things that he was saying. And really the Beatitudes was total um, disruption, I guess you can say. The Beatitudes were Jesus coming and really flipping the teachings upside down. And so I've referenced this before, and maybe you guys have heard it, but when it comes to Jesus, we serve the upside-down kingdom. Because what Jesus teaches us, uh, teaches us in the demonstration of his life is totally against what society teaches us. What does society teach us? Te society teaches us to be prideful in what we do. It's all about our accomplishments. It's all about the things that we can put in front of ourselves that we have to have some type of security net, safety net. We have to have some type of investment. And if we don't have the typical package, then we're not succeeding in life. But Jesus flips it upside down. And what does he teach us? He teaches us humility, right? The concept of humility, we've talked about this over the last several weeks. The concept of humility is foreign to people outside who call themselves Christians. But let's talk about Christians versus discipleship. Because I feel like nowadays, anybody can call themselves Christians. I think nowadays, Christians get a bad rep. 
because people that claim to be Christians, I think being called a Christian is too easy nowadays. But truly, Christianity isn't cheap, but we make it out to be cheap. And we can we come across a lot of people who would feel entitled to say that they're Christians because they may every so once in a while go to church. But what has been lost in the concept of church in Christian movement is this thing called discipleship. It's the actual cost of following Jesus. And so, yeah, it's easy for us to say, yeah, we're Christians. We, um, we, we entitle ourselves to a brand but we don't actually live out what Jesus has been teaching us. But discipleship, on the other hand, it teaches us, it inflicts us, it moves us in such a way that if we actually see the things that he's teaching us and saying, that we would begin to live out our lives in such a manner. And so the cost of discipleship, we know it's part of our DNA. It's part of our brand. We must deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. And let me tell you, there is nothing appealing about denying ourselves or denying the things that we want. But the thing that I can promise you, I can't promise you anything outside of the promise that the Holy Spirit delivers, that the Lord delivers, that Jesus delivers. Because even talking about life in itself, life is not, Jesus didn't guarantee this life to be easy, but he called this life to be worthwhile. And so the promise that comes is that you would have eternity with him forever. And that in itself is good enough. And that statement is so profound, and we allow that statement to run our lives, to run our agendas, to run who we are, that we know that we have our eternity, our eternal life secured with him. And because of that statement, we call ourselves disciples of Jesus. We are sold out. We are bought out. Of course, with a price. The price comes in Jesus going on that cross. But we are bought out, sold out for a cause and for a name. And that name is Jesus. Here we go. James chapter 4, verse 11 to 17. These are very, as we close out chapter 4, there's very practical things. Man, he's just very blunt. And so don't take it for my words. Take it for the words of James. In verse 11, it reads, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Now, if you guys were here with us several weeks ago, this is oddly familiar because Will had preached in Taming the Tongue in James chapter 3. And he references yet again, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is God Almighty, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? 
So there's two very practical takeaways that we see. And the first one's going to be up on the screen. And when he's talking about the concept of um, speech and what you say, really, this is the um, outwardness of your own heart. This is the example that is set. And I wrote this down, that even a one-degree angle of an udder of a ship sets it off the set course, course and set path. Even one degree of the udder that is set aside, set apart, would begin to deteriorate your life. And so maybe you think to yourselves, oh, the thing that I say, the, the sentence that I'll speak, the lie that I'll conduct, the envy or the hate that I'll... I'll say, won't be that significant. But when you're talking about the motives of the heart, every single thing that you say would actually begin to prove to be just a little bit that will set you apart, that will set you off. And so one degree turns into two degrees, and then two degrees turns into three. And so you may not see it compile, but slowly but surely, you'll get there. But on the flip side, if you're talking about an utter set off one degree and how one thing after the next thing will begin to compile, you look on the flip side. And this is where we hope and we rejoice in Jesus. Because you're talking about, yeah, if there's one degree that goes off in regards to how we speak to one another and the hatefulness or the envy that we may have, and this is the reflection of our hearts. On the other side, we're talking about the glory of Jesus. And how the glory of God allows us to go from ever increasing glory. Even if it's 1%. Look, at the end of the day, I mean, look, who am I to say that any of us could just have this miraculous change? But this is what I've been taught about the Christian life. Of course, nothing's promised for tomorrow. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But what I've been taught in about Christian life is the everyday gradual progression. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And what God is calling each and every one of us into and what he's challenging us into is learning to live out our faith every single day. To be better than we were yesterday. And oftentimes, we may not feel that way, but what's the metric to analyzing that 1%? I think the hope and the glory that we have in Christ is the ability for us to say, God, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, and I am in desperate need of your help and grace today. And when we're able to acknowledge that, oh man, we're able to continue to grow in everlasting glory. The second part is this. The law was and is precious. The law was and is precious. In this first portion, he's talking about, a per, the, let's, let's just read it. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. I am guilty of this. And I'm sure for those of you guys who have been church, you're guilty of this as well. The law for me has been mocked. 
but it should never be that way. The law was and is still precious. The early church revered the law, right? Because for them, the fundamental teachings of Jesus wasn't present, wasn't available at that time, right? They were still getting used to it. This is why James was instructing the church. And so that what they, what they, what they, what they were clinging to was the, the beauty of the law. Church, this is a reminder that we need to still be in awe and wonder of the law of Christ, right? Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The preservation of the law is still a beautiful thing. And this leads me to my last sub-point for this. What kept Israel on course might very well keep us on course as well. Maybe the thing that kept Israel in their bounds, right? The law was presented so that Israel wouldn't wander too far off. Did Israel wander? Yes. We see the demonstration in the Old Testament so many a times, but they, the law was present so that they wouldn't wander too far off. When was the last time you read the Old Testament? Or when was the last time you read the Ten Commandments? Right? I'm guilty of it. I had to read it this past week. Right? How many of us memorize the Ten Commandments? I'm guilty. I, right off the top of my head, don't test me. Right? And so when we think about it, we see the reference of what James is teaching. We see how he uses the depiction of the law and he gets the, the, he gets the early church's attention. He says, hey, you got to be mindful of these things. If you go against this, you're going against the law as well. So let's continue on, because uh, there's much to say, little, little time. In verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What? is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes in this sentence God is still very mindful of us and he has created us with a sense of purpose but we are only here for a fraction of time we are only here for a little bit so this leads me to my next point. We must live in the now. We must live in the now. I want to choose to live the best life now. Now look, Christianity is nothing that is forced, right? Like, we can't force the gospel down your throat. If I could, I would. Trust me, right? <laughs> but we can't force Christianity upon each upon a person. And so what does it mean to live out your best life? Right? There's so many different standards. Like in socioeconomics, like it would be considering that you would have a thriving business. It would be having a successful family, whatever that entails. Some of us would look to see on social media and be influenced by the things of social media. And it's like, oh, I have to live that life in order to live my best life. 
Can I present a truth for anybody that calls Jesus Lord and Savior? Our best life is choosing to follow Jesus. That is our best life. And I choose to follow Jesus every single day because I know that me choosing Jesus, there is an abundance that is there. There is a reward that is far greater than myself or anything of this world. And my best life is rooted in Jesus. And I'm satisfied in that. I don't need fame. I don't need riches. I don't need anything of this world in order for me to live my best life. My DNA is rooted in the hope, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I want to choose to live my best life. Last week, I made this reference. I don't want to live like my old self because my old self wasn't good enough. Man, I just got to this place when I gave my life to Jesus where I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. I just got to this place where I just felt like there was no end to this void that I found in my heart. And then Jesus met me where I was. And the beauty for each and every one of us is that Jesus will meet us where we are. And he presents us with a new life. A new life that is secured in him. Maybe some of us just need to respond to that call as Jesus is beckoning each and every one of us to his name, to his glory, to his love. Continue on in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that question to ask, and it'll be up on the screen, what if we posture and position ourselves in the will and way of the Lord? Would there, would there be anything to worry about? Right? If we were to posture and position ourselves to the way and the will of the Lord, would there be anything to worry about? Of course not. But oftentimes we don't. Man, so let's reverse the question out loud. And how about we list out the practical things that someone may be worried about? So let's just look at the screen, right? So one to five, and I added in a bonus one that won't be on the screen because I asked last minute. But let's talk about career, right? Like career is such a big deal. Relationships, marriage, dating, friends, etc., right? Especially the context of marriage. You want to make sure that the person that you are in holy matrimony with for the rest of your life, that that person is the right one. Money, man, because money doesn't go on trees. Where will these things come from? Kids, present and future, family, and then big investments. That's the last one that's not on there. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Oftentimes we present ourselves, or oftentimes we trap ourselves in our own worries because we lack a response of obedience to the Lord by saying, God, I will give you these things. So many times we want it to be within our own grasp. We want it to be within our own possession. 
We want to make these things so tangible within our lives. But maybe, just maybe, if we were to give it to the Lord, we'd have less worry in our lives. We'd allow the Lord to determine and to move and maneuver and do as he would if we were to simply just give these things up. And going into the last portion, in verse 16 to 17. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Final point is this. Your own boasting will get you nowhere. But there's good news. Because we don't need to boast upon ourselves or within ourselves. First Corinthians, First Corinthians says this, Let he who boasts, boast in the name of the Lord. Let he who boasts, boast in the name of the Lord. James is saying, foolish, arrogant, prideful, selfish, lover of money, greedy and needy to the early church. And these guys are walking around like, just conceited, puffed up, right? I guess I don't. I guess I don't need, really need to do that. But <laughs> but these guys are so caught up with just legalistic matters and the representation of just looking good, being good, preparing for good. And James is saying, what are you to boast in your arrogance? And oftentimes, as I've reflected on scripture, how many times do I find myself in a spot, in a place of arrogance as well? Especially when it comes to Christianity. Oh, you know, I read my Bible today. Oh, I did my devotional. Oh, I did my prayers. Oh, I did all these things. I'm serving X amount at church, or I'm doing this sign-up event, and et cetera, et cetera, and then you just get to this place where you're like, side-eye? Like, well, I recognize that you're not doing this, therefore thou aren't as holy. You read your Bible today? Did you uh, make sure you prayed for hours, and just not just praying, but on your knees, Right? Weeping on the floor. Did you do your devotionals? And we get so caught up with trying to determine somebody else's intimacy with Christ. But James is instructing, you need to learn to take care of yourself and the arrogance that you hold. Look, at the end of the day, as pastor, like, would I want everybody to love Jesus with all of their hearts, of course. But I also understand that we are all people that are in beautiful progression in the process called life. So as he's saying these things, I mean, later on in Galatians, talks about the fruits of the spirits. As we just mentioned, the foolish, arrogant, prideful, selfish, lover of money, greedy, and needy. What he wants us to observe 
is the fruits of the Spirit and how it begin to pour out of our own lives. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's almost as if James is saying, hey, you learn to live out your faith. You learn to live out your life. These things will be demonstrated. You know, for me to be able to observe just people that just... Um, reek is not the right word. <laughs> um, when somebody is just, um, I guess you can say perfumed or s- smell strongly of the fruits of the Spirit, it's evident. It shows. You don't need to say, oh yeah, this, uh, this person or... the you know, a person that has it doesn't need to claim that they have it. It just shows. And James, as he's writing this, his firsthand experience and what he's trying to teach the church is that Jesus was the ultimate representation of that. Jesus lived it out firsthand and James experienced it. And James is writing to teach us that we can live it out as well. That's the entire course of this sermon. This entire theme is for us to live it out. So I'll end with this. We're not called to boast, but to be bold. We're not called to fear, but to faith. We're not called to arrogance, but to authenticity. We're not called to be prideful, but to be purposeful. We're not called to be selfish, but to be selfless. We are called as his sons and daughters. We are called as his glorious possession. We are called to be disciples, designed with a destiny. And we are called to live out our faith in response to the gospel that was set out for us. This is what James has been teaching us. And I hope that the words have been transforming you, not like basically through the sermons. Sure, sermons are great. But I hope that the Word of God, the actual living, breathing text, has been changing and positioning you differently. Look, the gospel invitation is this, is that you can come as you are, but you cannot leave the same. And this is where Jesus invites us. By His stripes, by His blood, by his glorious death, and most importantly, the resurrection, we have new life in him. And that's our response. That is our response to glory. So the song, that last song, Lord, show show us your glory. Look, you're not attracted to it unless you've seen it firsthand. And so when we make that statement, God, I want to see your glory. It's because we've already gotten a taste. We've already gotten a touch. We've already gotten a little bit of it. So Lord, show us your glory. Can we pray?